Welcome to the Bearers for Builders podcast, brought to you by Radical. Radical is a peer-to-peer stack that offers developers infrastructure to collaborate on open source code in a decentralized way. This week, Maddie Bergen speaks with Will Papper, graduate of Stanford University, philosopher and co-founder of Syndicate DAO, who are revolutionizing the setup of investment funds. Thank you so much for coming on the Radical podcast today. Before we dive into it, I would love to hear a bit more about you. Thank you, Maddie. Yeah, it's fantastic to be here. Um, So I'm Will. I'm a co-founder of Syndicate. We help set up investment DAOs, and we can take the process of setting up an investment DAO to only a few seconds when, in the traditional world, setting up an investment fund would be many, many weeks of work. So we handle most of the process via automation, and we dramatically simplify the end-to-end steps. Amazing. And what's your involvement been in the space for the last few years? Absolutely. Yeah. So I got into the decentralization space in 2013. I started out working on mesh networking technologies, actually. So I was working on um, research one summer at MIT, which let phones communicate peer-to-peer. So Instead of needing to go through central servers, phones could connect directly if they were in the same local area. And as a result, in, say, disaster scenarios or areas without traditional cell infrastructure, your cell phones could still communicate. That was one primary area of decentralization research at the time. The other area was BitTorrent. That was very popular as well. And the third area was Bitcoin. So working on mesh networks introduced me to Bitcoin. Not directly, they're two separate technologies, but it brought me down the rabbit hole. From there, I was working on side projects related to the Bitcoin network. So essentially things like verifying file hashes on the Bitcoin blockchain and trying to launch my own coin. This was around 2013 or 2014. And in the process, I saw how difficult it was to set up your own coin using the Bitcoin source code. You had to fork the source code, create your own network, find a proof of work miners to secure it, It is a very, very tedious process and a very difficult one. Around that time, I saw the Ethereum presale, and I realized, oh, hey, this lets me launch my own coin. At the time, it was coins, not tokens, um, without needing to secure my own network. Cool. Um, So I took the $10 I got for free from Coinbase, and I put that into the Ethereum presale. If I put $100 in, I could have bought a house with the money, but, you know, hindsight is 2020. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, you've been in the space for quite a while. Um, And I guess, when did you start seeing DAOs come around? Like, what was your first involvement in a DAO? Yeah, so I invested in the DAO in 2016. It was the first DAO that was created. And its goal was to be an investment DAO on top of the Ethereum network. At the time, it attracted 13% of all Ether in existence. And pre-crash dollars, I think that was around $35 US dollars. So it would have been larger than likely every single crypto venture fund combined. The DAO did not go very well. It got hacked. Um, That's why we have Ethereum and Ethereum Classic now as a result of the DAO hack. But I saw the incredible excitement and enthusiasm around the DAO in 2016. I kept waiting for DAOs to come back for the next few years and keeping an eye on them. But investment DAOs in particular were an area that was still very early and only a small handful of groups are working on them. So 
Ian, my co-founder, and I, after researching Syndicate since meeting in 2018, decided to co-found it full-time together in 2021. And what inspired you to create Syndicate? What problems were you trying to solve? So Ian and I were coming from two different backgrounds when we started researching Syndicate. So I was coming from the builder, hacker, tinkerer side. And I had for many years been tinkering in the space with various projects. And I saw how I, as someone who didn't have any connections, who didn't have any past tracker in the space, was able to make a pretty life-changing investment into the Ethereum presale. Not in terms of total dollar amount, that was certainly nice, but 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 not life-changing, but really in terms of the community I found and the technology I found. And Ian, at the same time, he was setting up IDEO's crypto venture fund while I was working on R&D at IDEO. That's how we met in 2018, and that's when we started researching the idea for Syndicate together. And at the time, he was setting up a professional venture fund and saw how huge the barriers to entry were and how many gaps there were in setting it up. And we took both of our experiences and we combined that together of seeing the benefits of helping improve the professional side and automating that significantly alongside greatly opening up access so that anyone can participate even when they're new to the space. Amazing. And I mean, you've had incredible traction with Syndicate.io and congratulations on everything that you have achieved so far. Um, What are the current activities that you're seeing Syndicate being used for at the moment? Are there any specific DAOs that are really interesting you? Yeah, so we care a lot about expanding access to investing, about making investing accessible to more than just professional investors, and instead available to anyone who wants to start investing together with their friends or with their communities. One group that I love to highlight that is a really great example of what we want to create on Syndicate is a group called The Symmetrical. So The Symmetrical, they're a group of Gen Z investors, and they set up on Syndicate and started buying NFTs together. And then after buying a few NFTs together, they also started doing startup investing together for the members who were accredited. And it's a fantastic way for them to get started with building a track record as investors in early stages. And then eventually at Syndicate, we want to help them with every step of the journey where that track record that they build up at the very beginning can serve them throughout their entire investing career. It's something where it's so satisfying to see people be able to get started with something that's dramatically simpler than, for example, a venture fund to set up. There's a number of groups on our platform who are buying NFTs, buying tokens, investing in startups. We even have helped with some more esoteric things. For example, I helped Constitution Down with Compliance and helped them get through the bid process, essentially from we have a bunch of ETH in a multisig to we're bidding with cash in hand at Sotheby's, how to bridge the gap between those two between those two spots. We very much in the early days helped City DAO with legal formation where they we helped them set up their Wyoming DAO LLC. And then after that they were off and running and they've done really incredible work. And we've seen a very wide variety of assets, but I'd say the bread and butter tends to be NFTs, tokens, and startups. So I guess moving into the on-chain versus off-chain assets. So Syndicate also allows you to, I guess, hold off-chain assets. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So your Syndicate, if you choose, can be backed by a legal entity, and that legal entity can make investments in the traditional world. So the really cool part about it is that the legal entity and the DAO are linked. So 
they're actually one-to-one. The ownership of the tokens is the same as the ownership of the legal entity. And that allows you to do things like use syndicate to invest in startups um, in a way that's incredibly seamless and incredibly web three native. Got it. And I think that slides quite seamlessly into regulations surrounding DAOs. Um, I'm sure you get asked about this all the time. But where do you see the key struggles in the next few years in terms of regulations when it comes to DAOs? Because they're such a foreign structure. Yeah. So the really hard part about it is around providing true ownership. So ownership in private companies, i.e. not publicly traded ones, has historically in the U.S. at least been very limited, where if you're an individual, you can invest in public companies, you can um, receive equity in the company that you work for, you can invest as an accredited investor into private companies, or can invest into crowd sales. The crowd equity sales are a space with a lot of nuance, so um, they, they they help, but they don't address everything. So really the choice that people are left with is essentially provide ownership to a very small number of already wealthy individuals or provide something that's not ownership, i.e. governance tokens, something else, to a very large number of individuals. And that's something that our current investor protection regime has created in the U.S. and the U.S. regulations apply if you have any U.S.-based members. So effectively in the U.S. and abroad, what we see in crypto has even less ownership and even less investor protections than the traditional world because they're not allowed to. So for example, with Constitution Dow, we could not offer ownership of the Constitution. That would not have been something that we could do legally. We can offer people governance over how to advise the, the, for example, display of the Constitution, the plaques around the Constitution, the area where it's located. We can offer people governance, but we can't offer people ownership. We would have loved to offer fractional ownership, but we couldn't do so. And that's because, ironically, the rules that are set up to protect investors means that people are giving donations instead of being able to make investments in something they care about. So this will, I hope, change at some point. Um, it's. I thought that it would change a lot faster than it did. It's been many, many years in the making, and the only improvement we have so far is the crowdfund regulations, which help a good bit in terms of giving individual investors access to uh, broader investments. But what you tend to see with those platforms is, A, they're pretty limited in the amount of money that you can raise. You can used to only be able to raise $1 million. Now you can only raise up to $5 million. B, they come with very high fees, between 6 and 8% in most cases. So you would usually, if you could take money from a professional investor at 0% fees, most of the time people do that instead of taking money from a crowdfunding platform at 6 to 8% fees. And also, at the same time, the investments that are offered there tend to be much more limited because professional investors still have an advantage in being able to provide help and advice and things along those lines. So some of the investments on the crowd equity platforms, not all of them, but some of them are 
either investments where the economics are very bad, and that is obscured in some way. For example, you can't raise for a venture fund on those platforms, but you can raise for the general partnership entity of a venture fund on those platforms, which means that retail investors, instead of getting paid back if the fund makes money, only get paid back when the fund makes money and all other investors haven't paid back. So you're even lower in the stack of getting paid back compared to accredited investors. Or you'll see investments on there. For example, the market's recently changed quite a bit. Late stage valuations tend to be down between 50 and 80%. Many of the investments that I saw on the crowd equity platforms were at 2x higher valuation than their previous round, even though the markets were 50 to 80% lower. And they were good investments, of course, but they were at very bad prices. So it's a question of how much those regulations can improve. At the end of the day, when you can choose to raise an unlimited amount at 0% fees from professional investors, or a up to 5 million at between 6 and 8% fees from individual investors, a lot of startups are going to choose the 0% fee route, even though there's a lot that they could do to expand access with the crowd equity platforms. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you touched on something very close to this podcast in terms of the bear market. How are you seeing investments changing on Syndicate now that we've gone into this bear market? Have you seen much change happening? Yeah. So in general, we haven't seen a decline in usage, which is really interesting. I thought that we'd see a decline in usage because in most crypto protocols, their use is very heavily correlated with the price of crypto. When the price goes up, interest increases, therefore protocols see more usage, price goes down, interest decreases, and they see less usage. That's true for the vast majority of protocols out there. Interestingly, we've seen usage increase in the bear market. One contributing factor may be that we tend to facilitate longer-term investments. A lot of people are running buy-and-hold strategies on Syndicate for NFTs, tokens, or startup equity, which is in many ways buy-and-hold by default when you can't easily sell it. Um, and very few people are running trading vehicles or vehicles that are highly leveraged or things that are more short-term. So I think that in the bear market, the longer-term investors will survive and the longer-term builders will survive. But the people who are in it for the short-term, who are trying to make money very quickly, whether as an investor or as a builder, they're going to drop out of the space. And we've definitely seen a smaller number of people reaching out to us now to work on DAOs together. But in general, the quality of the groups reaching out tend to be much higher than before. So in the bull market, there was a lot more outreach, but it was a lot more variable in terms of how long-term oriented a particular group was. And we had to very, very carefully filter them to make sure that we're only working with long-term oriented people for the hands-on projects that we decided to do. Whereas in the bear market, everyone is in it for the long-term because there's not the easy money anymore. So it's much easier now to differentiate, which helps a lot. Yeah, I think what we've seen is we've seen a lot of the hype leave, um, which uh, when I when you actually speak to people that are deep into this space, everyone seems to be quite positive about it because of this attitude that the bear market is for builders and that there are a lot of people building 
And off the back end of this, we'll probably see a lot of innovation happening. Um, and how are you currently feeling about the bear market? I know that you've probably lived through a few bear markets in your time. Um, how are you feeling about this current one? Yeah, so this bear market is completely different from past bear markets. So different that it's really hard to emphasize. So there were a few different bear market cycles that I've seen. The first one was the collapse of Mt. Gox, where Bitcoin that was held in Mt. Gox became impossible to withdraw, and the exchange collapsed, and that had cascading effects for the Bitcoin price. And that is something where there were other more resilient exchanges like Coinbase that filled the gap, but that had a lot of people question their faith in crypto because self-custody was not that common at the time. You didn't have hardware wallets. You had people just needing to write down seed phrases or store it on their hard drive. So most people back then, they started on their computer. Maybe they had a note written down somewhere. They're not doing what you see people do now where people etch seed phrases into steel for with certain services or they'll set up a ledger and they'll keep their seed phrase in a bunch of different locations, split up into parts. You don't really see that. You didn't really see that at the time. So the fact that the exchanges couldn't be trusted meant you were kind of left with, do I want to start an exchange, start on my hard drive and maybe it could get hacked or store it on a piece of paper and just hope for the best. Now the self-custody methods are a lot more sophisticated. The second bear market was post-2016 after the Dow hack, where Ethereum split into Ethereum Ethereum Classic. And that definitely was an event where it was possible that the Ethereum network wouldn't survive it, because if developer activity got fragmented and miner activity got fragmented, people would have to deal with two different chains, you'd lose composability, you'd lose interoperability. Thankfully, everyone consolidated onto a single chain, what we now know as Ethereum, but people very well could have consolidated on Ethereum Classic instead. That's less likely because a lot of the people who are using the chains also had significant holdings invested in the DAO. So it's, uh, it's, it's not surprising that we're using Ethereum over Ethereum Classic today, but if the chain had been split in two in a way the usage was 50-50, things would have looked a lot different today. And then the next bear market, of course, was after 2017. In 2018, there was really nothing to do on top of the Ethereum network in a substantial way. You could buy CryptoKitties, there were some GameFi experiments, and there were some lending protocols such as Maker that were around. But for the most part, there it was this gap where ICOs had failed to produce anything real. And... DeFi and other primitives that we know were still being built. So there was this period of time where primitives like Uniswap, for example, didn't exist, but also the money that had been invested in the space, often in ICOs, didn't really translate into very much. So all of those bear markets had raised pretty fundamental questions about the sustainability of the networks. And people look back and they look back in hindsight and they say, oh, well, it's obvious that those bear markets were great buying opportunities. People who were going through that saw ETH sit at $100 for two years straight after having just seen it go from a $1,000 plus peak down to that and stay there for two years. And there's no staking at the time, and there was barely any LPing, so it's not like you could make money on your passive ETH that easily. Um, there were ways, of course, but, um, but it wasn't as straightforward as it is today. 
And the difference now is that this bear market is A, not driven by crypto. It's driven by macro factors that are cascading into crypto. And B, does not raise questions about the sustainability of the networks. If anything, it's been a highlight for how well crypto and decentralized networks have performed. The fact that the DeFi lending protocols, after coming over under pretty extreme strain, have weathered the storm perfectly, while the centralized lending organizations have struggled significantly, is in many ways a point in favor for crypto, and a point that decentralization is in fact working. And at the same time, there's tons of yeast on the network, there's tons of capital on the network, there are tons of investors funding the network and builders on top of it. So this bear market, it, it it's impossible to compare to previous ones because now crypto is working, it has something real, and that won't go away. Um, actually, Ian and I, we decided to co-found Syndicate after DeFi Summer in 2020 because we knew that at that point, the right foundation was in place. 2018, 2019, there wasn't enough in terms of primitives for us to be able to build Syndicate. We didn't have enough stablecoin usage, enough DEX usage. You barely had any NFT trading. Um, you didn't have enough primitives in place. Um, but after DeFi Summer in 2020, that was completely different. And the DEXs aren't going away. The NFT marketplaces aren't going away. The lending protocols aren't going away. If anything, they're even stronger now. So I think that this bear market, I don't know how long it will last, but it doesn't shake faith in the network like the previous bear markets did. I guess the whole blockchain ecosystem has matured a lot in the last few years, especially with all the activity that's going on. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you also partly built Syndicate during a bear market yourselves, right? So um, we started researching Syndicate in 2018 during mm -hmm. the bear market. And we loved the researching it at that time because it was a very focused time. Essentially, just to set the stage, we were both at IDEO at the time. IDEO Collab is an R&D group inside of IDEO, the design firm, and they essentially offered a place for crypto builders in the bear market to hang out and work together and brainstorm. So there were people working on very early versions of NFTs and things that look like membership NFTs today. There were people working on very early versions of, um, of for example, um, like different like arbitration protocols and protocols for for judging outcomes and prediction markets and things along those lines. There were people working on very early versions of NFT galleries. There was a lot of really interesting activity at the time during the bear market. And it was nice because we were very focused and we could all build. It wasn't this absurd bubble, but instead all of us could look at what made the technology really interesting. The fascinating thing is that most of the people I knew in 2017 were getting into crypto. Almost none of them were building pretty much every single person was starting a trading firm. And most of those trading firms blew up in 2018 because the way to make a lot of money is to use a lot of leverage and the way to lose a lot of money is to, lose, is to use a lot of leverage. So a lot of those trading firms blew up. But in 2018 and after, there were a lot of builders and most of the research on builders in the space, Electric Capital, Capital has this great report on builders through bull and bear markets. And they find that bull markets increase interest in crypto and increase the number of 
of builders, but in bear markets, the builders don't decline. The builders stay constant. So builders in crypto, even if interest in crypto looks like that, sorry, this is on a podcast. So even if interest in crypto looks very wavy and looks like it goes up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down, builders, it looks more like a staircase where it'll go up and then it'll be flat for a while and it'll go up and it'll be flat for a while. And that's something where for builders in the space, the interest stays constant and they can keep focusing and they can stay heads down. So I don't know how long this bear market will last, but I don't think we'll see significant outflows of builders, even if we see reduced retail interest. That's a really interesting way to visualize it in terms of visualizing the amount of builders in the space and seeing that they're not leaving. And that provides confidence that blockchain really is here to stay. And this podcast is all about builders in the space. And you have built something very incredible with syndicate.io. Do you have any advice for other builders looking to either start their own project or they're building their own project at the moment? What is the general advice that you'd give? So in the bear market, the scarcest resource is attention. And what you need to work really hard is to get people to pay attention because there's probably six groups doing something identical to you. And because it's a bear market, sorry, a bull market and it's hyper speculative and it's crowded, you stand out by getting attention. And in a bull market, it's typically the marketers who do the best. A lot of NFT projects, they're not differentiating themselves based on their technical fundamentals. They're not differentiating themselves based on their novelty and their mechanism design. They're oftentimes not even differentiating themselves very much on their art. If anything, the art is often homages to other NFT projects in the space. Instead, they're differentiating themselves with their marketing. And that is the most charitable version of the meme coin hypothesis, which Kobe has a very good Substack post on, which is that in a bull market, what is the most scarce resource and what people are essentially selling is attention. And that the ability to capture attention matters more than everything else. In a bear market, that's not true. In a bear market, there's not six people doing the same thing as you. There's between zero and one. And there's not a massive influx of people into one project and the next and the next and the next in a hyper-speculative way. Instead, it's you find a dedicated community, you build a core around it, you work on novel technology, novel mechanism design, novel art, and all of that comes together to create something really, really interesting. So in a bear market, it's better for people who are builders. It's better for people working on technology fundamentals. It's better for people working on mechanism design. It's better for artists who are in it for really interesting, unique pieces. That being said, it will be harder to sell, especially if what you're selling is being sold to individual investors. So if you're launching an NFT project, you'll have an easier time getting attention probably a harder time minting out, hence why the free mint meta was so big at the beginning of the bear market and may continue to be big, we'll see. And that's the only catch is just because in a bear market, building is more building and strong fundamentals is more important than attention, it doesn't mean that you don't need any attention at all. You still do need to market what you're doing, but you'll have a much easier time doing so to investors, to potential users, to the community, you'll have a much easier time compared to a bull market because 
even the fact that you're here and you're building signals that you're in it for the right reasons. 100%. And you must speak to a lot of investors, whether that's through the venture DAOs or just investors in your network on a day-to-day basis. How have you seen investor attitudes change towards funding blockchain and Web3 startups? And do you have any advice to founders trying to fundraise in this time? Yeah, yeah. So there's two interesting trends I've seen. One is that the there's a significant difference in how traditional venture funds, by traditional, I'm defining at them as they built most of their experience doing Web2 investments and crypto-native venture funds, i.e. funds that, funds that built most of their experience doing crypto investments and likely do exclusively crypto investments. There's a substantial difference in how those funds have reacted. So traditional investors, putting aside ones that have incredibly dedicated crypto presencies, like Andreessen, for example, but um, traditional investors who don't have dedicated crypto presences, but maybe have one person focused on crypto, Maybe they're focused on crypto half their time. Um, there's been, in many of those cases, though not all, there are really incredible gems, and there I'm I'm I, I'm I'm grateful that uh, that 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 many of those incredible people are on our cap table. But um, many traditional funds have been pulling back from crypto investing, so they got in while it was hot and while it was speculative, and now they're getting out, and it's. Interesting because you would, of course, expect the opposite behavior. You'd expect people to be not buying when prices are high and instead buying when prices are low. But instead, the dynamics look much more like, wow, crypto is doing incredible and we don't have any crypto exposure. We should go find some crypto exposure, which leads to that buy high and then pull back when the prices are low sort of dynamic you see. So this does not apply to all traditional venture funds by any means. If you want to know which ones are still investing, look at Syndicate's list of investors on the about page. It's a really incredible group of people, um, but it is a broad industry trend. The second trend is one of the fact that late stage markets, particularly in crypto, are essentially frozen. And they're frozen for two reasons. Um, one is that valuations of public companies and liquid tokens have dropped significantly. So Investors can't justify paying a price on the private markets that is 2x higher than what they could get on the public markets or liquid token markets. But at the same time, um, entrepreneurs don't want to take a price that's 50% lower because the Fed raised rates. It has nothing to do with their business. It has nothing to do with their chance of success. So the only groups that are raising right now are the ones that have to raise right now. This affects late stage. So this affects pretty much Series B and beyond. Um, series A, the the expectations are now higher. So Series A deals are still getting done, but the bar is much higher than it was before. In the bull market, startups could raise Series A's with a few customers and a partially built product. And in the bear market, you now need a bunch of customers and a fully built product. Likewise, in seed, the expectations go up as well, where instead of having an idea, you need to have um, something to show, a prototype, a team, etc. So the expectations are now higher in the early stage markets. And this dynamic will likely continue for a while. We'll likely see this filter back from the late stage markets to the early stage markets. 
and it still hasn't. It's still starting to hit Series A, and it hasn't hit Seed yet. So that's something that I think we should keep an eye on as a community. Essentially, how each stage is affected tells us about where we are in the bear market. Right now, we're still not fully in the bear market because seed valuations are still unaffected for the most part. So that's something that I think will be an important trend for entrepreneurs to be aware of. Um, But if you're talking with crypto-native venture funds or venture funds with long crypto track records and you're raising a seed, the bear market's not going to affect you that much. If you're trying to raise a Series A, you'll have higher expectations just because people could raise on a few users and a partially built product in the bull market doesn't mean that you can do the same in a bear market. And if you're doing Series B and beyond, you should get to two to two and a half years of runway as quickly as possible because you might be waiting for a while unless you want to accept significantly lower valuations. So it depends what stage people are at. But those are the trends that I've seen in the fundraising environment. Those trends tend to be pretty universal among people I've talked with. So that's something to be aware of. But anyone who wants to start out building, it's a great time. You have mostly unaffected seed stage valuations and tons of seed stage interest without the same rush into the space where it's really hard to filter who's serious and who's not and things on those lines. So it's probably a better time to start a company and raise a seed round than it was in the bull market. But it'll take longer to raise a Series A, and it'll be a worse time for Series B and beyond. Yeah, I imagine for investors, they're probably experiencing quality over quantity right now, which is never really a bad thing. Um, And moving on to, this is probably a question that you get asked a lot. Do you think that venture DAOs can replace the traditional venture capital model and structure? I hope so. (laughs) Certainly, I'm trying to build towards that. So I think that one thing that's interesting is that the venture capital model is, in many ways, very centralized right now. It is a small number of investors raise a very large amount of money, and then they deploy that very large amount of money with their own decision-making and their own choices. And sometimes those choices are excellent, and we see the startups that we see succeed today. Sometimes those choices are less than excellent. For example, there's many investors who had a giant rush into clean tech in the early 2000s, and most of those funds uh, had very few returns from it. Um, So essentially, a small number of people are setting the narrative and the tone for the whole industry. And it's not just what people are talking about, but it's also, if you're following, if you're backing the narrative with capital, it's what people end up doing. So that centralization is, it looks similar to governments. Centralized governments can get a lot done and can get it done very efficiently, but the consequences of being wrong are likely greater because you don't have the same feedback loops that you have in more democratic governments. And I view the analogies for venture capital as similar. So I don't think venture capital funds will go away. I don't think they'll be completely replaced. But I think they'll stop being the only option. And our hope with Syndicate is that venture DAOs will be a decentralized alternative, one where capital is in the hands of many people, decision-making is in the hands of many people, 
and it's not in the hands of a few people with their own choices. It's in the hands of many people to decide what they want to fund, and you can start to get something that ideally is more organic and bottom-up in terms of what gets what gets funding, because there are many ideas that can fall through the gap, the, the gap where a professional investor might not believe in it because they don't experience that problem themselves, or they saw that market fail 10 years ago, or they get pitched similar startups all the time, so they're very skeptical and they have a high bar. But a decentralized network could potentially make those choices that may be higher risk or more contrarian than what a centralized venture fund could make. So I think there's a place for both. Right now, we essentially only have venture funds as examples. At Syndicate, we're working really hard to show that venture DAOs are a really important paradigm shift and something that leads to this greater democratization. So we're still early in our journey, but the early results we've seen of the groups that are on Syndicate, they look very different from professional investors in the best of ways. They're ecosystem funds. They're younger investors. They're more focused on a specific industry or a specific segment. And all of this all of this focus on expanding access and bringing more people into the space is something so powerful where with more people involved and more perspectives and more independence, we'll see better results. And that's something that's so exciting, even if it's still very, very early. Yeah, and I hope you're creating a report at Syndicate. Um, I'd be really, really curious to see the, the differences in investments between a traditional venture fund and then a venture DAO. Um, and I always get asked this question, but do you think venture DAOs should be for a select few people? Because I guess it's difficult, like allowing the power of making startup investment decisions, or I guess if we're speaking in a startup context, um, to the everyday user. How do you know that they're going to make the right decision? And I know that there is no right or wrong decision but do you think that there should be a bar to entry in terms of creating a venture DAO? So I don't think that there should be a barrier to entry in terms of who can create one. I think instead, people should be able to determine for themselves who they want to fund as people, as, as investors who are allocating capital and how much they want to fund them. So there is one comment from one of our investors that stuck with me. We're doing research in the very early days. And one comment they made, they had been investing in crypto for a long time, many, many years, far longer than most people. And they said, I love investing in crypto because the liquidity means that I can take greater risks. And they're right. They can change their mind much more easily. They can put money into something that's riskier because if it goes really well, they can keep their money there. And if it doesn't go well, they can pull their money out. Right now, the current venture fund model is very inaccessible. You have to raise one giant fund. You have to spend tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in setup costs. You need lawyers involved. It's a very manual, very hands-on process. So as a result, we only see funds that look like big pools of capital because that's all that the cost model is set up to support. If it's a huge cost to set up a fund, of course you're going to see funds that are just giant pools of capital and not smaller experiments. But one thing that's really powerful about Syndicate is that it is so much cheaper to set up. You can set up an investment club for only the cost of gas, if you don't want a legal entity, if you do want a legal entity, that's three hundred fifty to two thousand dollars, and so it's it's somewhere between a few dollars and two thousand dollars, depending on whether you want the 
um, the 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 most stripped down option or the most full featured option. And in terms of venture fund, you're looking at 40k to 80k in setup costs in the vast majority of cases. So I don't think that the model looks like barrier to entry. Instead, it looks like what that investor talked to us about, where you can put smaller checks into a lot more people. And when someone can spend $2,000 setting up an investment club, or even $5 setting up an investment club, or in Polygon, like one cent setting up an investment club, and they can go and start making investments immediately versus someone needing to spend $40,000 to $80,000 setting up a venture fund instead of putting a bunch of 100K checks into 10 funds as an institution, you could put a bunch of 10K checks into 100 different investment DAOs. Um, that's a really powerful model. That's something that is still pretty early. So I think that everyone needs to have a shot. That's something that's really important. Truly, talent is equally distributed. Opportunity is not. And we need to make sure that the talented people anywhere they are, no matter what their connections are, no matter where they're located, no matter what their local market is like, can rise up and can become successful investors and manage institutional capital. But I think that looks like smaller experiments, just like what we see in crypto. Experiments is the wrong word to use. I'd say smaller bets. Smaller bets where people start out, they build a track record, and they gain more money as they build a track record, which looks a lot like liquid token investing, where you might buy a liquid token, you might look at it three months later, see how it is. If you like it, you put more money in. If you don't like it, you keep it the same where you pull money out. I think that venture DAOs will look very similar. So I think that the market will take care of itself, where the really, really talented investors will get funded. But the incredible part is that anyone can set up and anyone can get started. And there's no barrier to entries into who can set this up initially. So well, I have one more question for you. What do you think the key challenges are going to be in the next few years that DAOs are facing? I think the biggest unsolved challenge in DAOs right now is governance. So at the moment, governance is essentially highly centralized. Um, we've taken a very narrow definition of decentralization. The very narrow definition of decentralization, the D in DAOs, is that governance is handled via on-chain voting. And that essentially that decentralization equals trustlessness. And that's something where we've essentially decentralized the mechanisms we're using. Votes are now operating on top of decentralized networks. Votes are made by decentralized parties. But we've centralized the funds and we've centralized the decision-making where, you know, to get approval to sponsor conferences, DAOs need to put a governance proposal in front of the entire DAO and have them vote on it. And that decentralization of the mechanics of voting without decentralizing the actual DAO itself, the treasury, the assets, the things that people are making decisions on, that I think is something that needs to be solved. I find sub-DAO models to be very compelling. Orcas Pods is one great example of, of a group that's pushing forward that philosophy. And I think that's what we'll start to see in the future where people right now equate DAOs with it's completely trustless on-chain governance and anything else is not decentralized and not a true DAO. And there is a time and a place for a trustless on-chain governance. I think that large protocols 
should have trustless on-chain governance. I think that protocol upgrades should always have trustless on-chain governance whenever possible. Sometimes you need a a, a governor via multi-sig in place initially, but protocols should drive towards that as quickly as possible. But in terms of, for example, DAOs that might be seeking to give out grants, I think that that should be lots of sub-DAOs with lots of decision-making power, and you give lots of people $10,000, $100,000 to make decisions with, and have you remove the trustlessness by, say, moving those all into separate multi-sigs? Not necessarily. You could have like veto rights, you could have delay periods, you can build in mechanisms that ensure that it's both trustless and also you've decentralized decision-making itself. But let's even take the most extreme example where you where a DAO says, we're going to give 100 different multi-sigs $10,000 each to give grants to the ecosystem. In reality, you can add governors, you can add milestones, you can add delays, you can add vetoes. So this is not necessarily the case in reality, but even with this most extreme example where you just give people money and trust them with it, I believe that only a very small number of people would misuse that trust. And some of that money would be misused, but the vast majority of the money would be used in a way that aligns with the goals of the DAO and gives it far more nimbleness in response. So I think that that sub-DAO structure is probably the biggest challenge for DAOs to solve right now. It's something that we're thinking a lot about. It's something that Orca's thinking a lot about. It's something that a few other groups are thinking a lot about. But so far, most DAOs are not running that way in practice. And I think for us to see fantastic results from DAOs, we will need to see more sub-DAOs as a common structure. I completely agree. And what are the top three DAOs out there that you'd recommend people to look into? Oh man, it's like choosing your favorite child. I don't know if I can do that. Um, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll interpret that more narrowly. So I'm not, I'm not naming my top three favorite DAOs, but I'm naming my top three favorite DAOs for everyone listening to look into, which is different. Um, uh, so the first one to take a look at is Index Co-op. Index Co-op does an incredible job at onboarding people. Um, they have best-in-class onboarding in the space, and that's something where um, if you are new to DAOs and you're not sure how to contribute, they have a very smooth path to doing so. And if you want to take a look at DAOs that are functioning with lots of builders and have lots of people contributing in a really detailed way and do a good job with this sub-down model that, that we were just talking about, take a look at Nouns, which does a great job at empowering different contributors um, and helping them build out their own ideas with grants and with things that further the visions of Nouns and an entire noun eco- Nouns ecosystem of derivatives, like Little Nouns, for example, which are more affordable than uh, than, than, than nouns itself. And if you're curious about DAOs that don't involve people building protocols um, and you're looking for other ways to contribute, um, definitely take a look at Rug Radio. It's a DAO that we work closely with at Syndicate, and they essentially are setting up a decentralized media network where, they've, where they run Twitter spaces and other education programming for NFT and NFT collectors primarily, but other groups as well. And that's a really great fit if your skills are in content production, art, etc. Skills that might be undervalued in a DAO that is focused on a protocol. Groups like Rug Radio and other groups that are focused on DAOs in the NFT space can help you really leverage those skills in a powerful way. 
Thank you so much, Will, for joining us here today. What is the best way for people to find you? Yep. Yeah, the best way to stay in the loop is Twitter. You can find me at Will Papper. Um, Will and then paper with an extra P, P A P P E R. You can find Syndicate at Syndicate Dow. And then um, the best way to reach out is first go to our Discord. We have our Discord link to from our Twitter page. Um, that's the best place to chat with the Syndicate community. If you're curious about setting up an investment DAO or want to chat about ideas for doing so, definitely go to our Discord itself. Um, it's a great way to get in touch with people before you decide to take the step to start an investment DAO. If you're unsure of whether you want to start one, go try us out at syndicate.io on Polygon first. It costs under a cent, and then you can try it out on mainnet after if you if you um, if you uh, have a great experience with it. And then um, if someone wants to reach me via email, will at syndicate.io works well. People can feel free to reach out there. Um, but definitely our Discord community is where you'll get the best of response and have the most help. Thank you so much, Will, for joining us here today. And please make sure to reach out to him. And I hope that you spend this bear market building syndicate into an incredible product, um, even more so than it is today. Thanks so much. Uh, this was a fantastic conversation. Really excited to uh, talk to all the builders who are building in the bear.